Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So, welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today I'm joined, of course, by Jesse. How are you, Jesse? I'm good. A bit late to the party. I was pretty sad I couldn't make the Christmas special, but um, had a lot of family stuff and work stuff, and it's all been a bit more COVID-y than I'd hoped for this time of year. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's lovely to have you. And as you've intimated, this is the New Year special because Jesse couldn't be part of our Christmas special episode of the Journal Club. And so we're going to talk about a couple of articles that Jesse had picked out as a, some ones to talk about for 2021, but they're going to, in fact, lead us into 2022. So, Jesse, I believe you're going to start with telling us about a paper looking at escape rooms. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So this one was recommended to us by a friend of the show, uh, Tim Mason on Twitter, and it was um, a paper called Advancing Team Cohesion Using an Escape Room as a Novel Approach. It was uh, by a coll- uh, sorry, Cohen and colleagues, and it was published in the Journal of Patient Safety and Risk Management. So I kind of, that piqued my interest, an escape room paper published in a Journal of Patient Safety and Risk Management. i step out to say it's possibly one of the more exciting topics in that journal. Um, So that was published in 2021. Um, Just kind of by way of breaking quickly through it and sort of stepping through the study um, analysis approach, the core uh, premise of this study was exploring the utility of an escape room in improving perception of cohesion within healthcare teams. That kind of spun off the I guess, assumptions and some of the suggestions from prior research, there's a link to patient safety and quality outcomes, quality of care outcomes, where there is high team cohesion. All has pretty good face validity, um, although correlations and kind of associations in in effect. The setting for this uh, study was a very large, I'd say, medical centre in California with 10,000 staff, 2,000 of whom were uh, medical staff. Um, The sample for the study out of that 10,000 was 280 self-selected staff members from the service. And that was people that kind of responded to an expression of interest to come and do an escape room um, with some predefined specs around uh, exploring team cohesion. Um, there, that further sort of broke down into 62 teams uh, comprised of three to six team members. So that's kind of our sample group. Um, the escape room design within that was deliberately um, avoided being a clinical context. So they used a scientist's laboratory and they posited that that um, was to, I guess, diminish, both diminish the sense of identity threat to clinicians um, in a gamified situation, but also to make it accessible to non-clinical team members as well. Um, the Escape Room ran for a capped time of 45 minutes and had nine puzzles to solve in that time. And much like the older style Sims with the voice of God in the ceiling, they could ask three, ask for three hints during the um, Escape Room to help with solving the puzzles from a room administrator. Very similar to uh, non-kind of clinically orientated Escape Room gamings. 
Yeah, um, and I think that's worth mentioning because I know you're a fan of escape rooms, Jesse, but not everybody might even know what they're about. But these are the kind of things you can sign up for as groups, go out and have a fun evening, and they basically lock you in a room and you have to solve the puzzles to get out. And sometimes people don't solve the puzzles, sometimes they do. It's got a bit of a competitive spirit about it. Yeah, and uh, there's there's quite a potential flip side of actually degrading team cohesion within this. So I think that's one of the points that these guys looked at pretty well, and we'll get to that is um, was it the win? or the people that solved all the puzzles successfully that had a higher perceived. So we'll, we'll get to that little teaser for later in the chat. Um, that's a good point that you come in with, though, that this that there has been a little bit of stuff around um, escape rooms looking at team cohesion because it's uh, like all fun, sort of semi-fun things. It's been taken over by the corporate world and done as team-building exercises. And so that's the context where there's been both in uni- university students, particularly in business and admin, um, and then some corporate settings, a handful, like less than a handful of studies looking at this. But this is where these uh, the researchers in this study um, developed, I guess, the methods of looking at team cohesion. Um, the novel aspect of their study was the proposition that this has not been studied in healthcare professional teams before. So that's the context and what's novel about their their study proposition. Um, From a research design design point of view, they used an interrupted within subject study design, i.e. there was no control. Um, And what we'd kind of, we'd kind of look at that as your pre, post and delayed um, self-perception rating scale type things. So very common in educational settings where you do a um, pre-assessment of your knowledge or confidence in something, um, an immediate post-assessment and then a delayed by a month or so. And in this study, that was exactly what they did, a, del- a pre-post and delayed by one month. Um, the scale that they used was a um, validated scale of perceived group cohesion scale um, that's a six-item questionnaire, each item having seven like-it scale points. Um, and that's further was further sort of divided into two domains. So there's a belongingness domain and a morale domain. So that, that was the aspects of the cohesion that they measured. So if I'm a subject in this, I'm there with my buddy of three to six people in my team. Before I do my escape room, they ask me to fill out this scale about my sense of belongingness and morale with this group. And then after I do the escape room, they ask me again. And then at another point a month or so down the track, they ask me again. Absolutely. So really not a particularly complex thing. And I just hadn't heard the framing of like within uh, within group interrupted mm. study design. And um, it's a nice way to make it sound yeah. uh, more researchy, I guess. Um, <laughs> the analysis then, um, without going too much into the statistical analysis, because when you're doing that sort of within group stuff, there's a lot of multivariate uh, regression analysis, paired, um, postdoc, hoc, um, t-tests to look for associations in there. The the wash of it is there was fifty percent of the teams were successful in completing the forty uh, the nine challenges in the forty five minutes. So a coin toss. The breakdown of um, composition was sixty seven percent female and thirty three percent male. Um, 18% of those were healthcare professionals, so pharmacists, RNs, MDs, and other um, clinical healthcare professionals. 
67% kind of I've clumped as administrative staff, so directors, project managers, those sorts of um, groups, and 15% were engineers, analysts, researchers, and grad students. Um, the Within that analysis then, so, uh, beyond the demographics, they looked at, uh, found statistical significance in um, the morale and belongingness between the pre and post immediate and also between the, and the pre and the delayed. Um, so there was a sustained, I guess, improvement in sense of belongingness and morale at one month post um, that met statistical significance. The secondary thing that they found was there was a weak amplification of that effect in the winners. So the winners like felt mildly better but to a statistically significant level better about their team. Um, everyone, loves that to, means. everyone loves to win. Um, and I, mean, I guess that's a chicken or the egg scenario where they, did they have great, better team cohesion and that's why they won or did they feel better team cohesion because they won? Um, yeah. A tricky Probably one. Probably a bit of both. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. So oh, how interesting. So the researchers were quite, I, I guess, fair in their assessment of the limitations of this. They weren't aiming to um, do anything particularly revolutionary, but um, did cite most of the limitations that I sort of thought from being uh, having a critical eye on the research aspects of it. Um, that mainly being the they noted self selection of participants having a, a potentially compounding effects. So people that liked working together put their hands up to go and work together and um, did a bit better in their team cohesion and they already had relatively high perceptions of team cohesion across the board. Um, that was the other thing that came out in the stats. So there was a very small uh, uh, treatment effect, I guess, um, but met statistical significance. Um they were all essentially stable teams. So the teams were comprised of people that worked together and knew each other versus dynamic teams. And the researchers quite fairly did suggest that there's probably quite a significance in difference in real world in dynamic teams about the sense of belongingness and morale um, than, there, than there is in stable teams that work together all the time um, mm -hmm. and did suggest that as an area for further investigation. Um, they, well, it may be that they actually have more to benefit from doing things like that because you, they're coming off a lower baseline. Yeah, you could have absolutely think so. And I guess the interesting thing would be seeing what the performance of those sort of teams is like as well um, mm. in, in achieving the outcome. So whether you also mm. get that sort of 50% um, completion rates or whether it would be lower. So a lot of, lot of – there's some interesting sort of smaller stuff to dive into with a bit more – um, robust study design around that they threw up. Um, the other thing that I think was really important that they did acknowledge is that there was a lack of blinding to what they termed the demand characteristics of the study, i.e. everyone knew they were there the, the, to look at team cohesion. The survey mm -hmm. was very obviously a team cohesion um, perception yeah. scale. So there was a, a highly likely sort of Hawthorne effect there to the to the results that people were reporting yeah. what they thought they should report and they acknowledge that and, but uh, yeah 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 so they'd actually done the scale even before they had the experience yeah yeah so it was quite hard and I mean they didn't propose a solution to that and it's it's probably quite hard 
to do in that context. Mm-hmm. But again, they've kind of re, uh, reiterated that they're trying to understand the potential for an escape room. So they're starting at looking at the tool of escape room and what's the potential of it uh, rather than trying to prove that it works. Um, the sort of interesting thing that slipped the acknowledgements for me was the fact that they were looking at healthcare teams, but there was only 18% of the study participants out of 280, which was again, a small slice of 10,000 staff that were healthcare professionals. I mean, the pragmatic component of both of us having tried to organize sims is it's often easier to grab someone from an office who doesn't mm-hmm. have necessarily the same time critical um, or contemporaneous demands on their time so more flexibility in their workload um, to get for these sorts of things and also the self-selecting aspect of it is um, it's enticing to do we can make time we can put it into our calendar whereas that's very hard to calendarize within your clinical work day yeah yeah. i did find that was a pretty hard one for me to get over when the novel aspect of this study was looking at the i guess the potential of escape rooms in healthcare teams and then the logical step from that is how that would affect patient safety and quality care outcomes and their actual performance yeah it's very interesting isn't it i mean i think they do set that up pretty well that they're talking about team cohesion and they don't quite justify why they picked that as the one of the six in Sharon Micken's work that they pulled out and I have an interest in this because I work with Sharon at Bond Uh, so the the whole thing about the six characteristics of the effective healthcare teams and pulling out cohesion but but that said I was very interested to know there even was a perceived group cohesion scale so I think that's kind of useful to understand that people are measuring these constructs. But I guess to get to your point, I don't know that we've had the right comparator. Do we really need to compare before and after? Because it's hardly surprising that you've got a bit more team cohesion after you have any kind of experience. We can't know that. But shouldn't we be comparing escape rooms with a simulation? Shouldn't we be comparing escape rooms with uh, huddles or mini sims in the clinical environment? Shouldn't we be comparing it with a mental rehearsal exercise? To my mind, that would be a better thing to look at how does this probably middle of the road uh, resource intensity compare with either very high or very low activities that we might get teams to do to build team cohesion and I guess I would say based a little bit on the work we've done and reading that um, others work that actually maybe the dose of that can be smaller than we think and we don't need to all traipse off to an escape room but in fact maybe if we sit together at handover and say hello my name is Victoria uh, that is actually an equally good way to enhance some team cohesion we don't know but I feel like that would be a great thing to use this measure for and this um uh, organizing framework uh, rather than necessarily saying before and after. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think the, you hit the critical point for me at the start of that um, sort of reflection, which was uh, teamwork is incredibly complex construct. And the selection of one thing out of that, um, I would it would have been great. I was like really hungry to understand why that particular thing was chosen. I kind of my my assumption is that it's because that was what was looked at in the other escape room 
um, mm. articles or papers, research studies from other domains um, outside of healthcare. So it's consistency with that. But uh, I completely agree. A comparator between like why would you even choose an escape room versus does an escape room uh, potentially improve team cohesion is a yeah. more interesting question hopefully for someone to pick up and run with and i and to be fair the um and, and acknowledge the that there's good work done by people that were really trying to have a look at this with some, rather than just go jesus cool let's do an escape room which i can <laughs> say i've been guilty yes. at, uh, guilty of um that they've moved the needle forward on understanding some of the potential utility of it um which I think helps form some more robust learning objectives for if you're choosing that modality. Yeah, absolutely. And some ways of measuring uh, outcomes, even if they're processed like team cohesion. And I think that's one of my, that was probably my last take-home message from this is for people interested in teamwork, the reference list in this paper isn't long, but it's rich. All our uh, favourite authors like Schmutz, Rosen, Salas, Micken are all there. So if you want a little bit of a primer on good teamwork, this is not a bad place to start as well. Yeah, I love a snowball search. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, having talked about teamwork in escape rooms, I believe now you're going to tell us a little bit about uh, teamwork and who should be running these uh, resuscitation teams, nurses or doctors or both. Excellent. I think uh, so. Paper two um, was recommended by another very close friend of Simulcast, um, Dr. Sarah Jansen's. Um, she recommended us actually the the paper is called Cardiac Arrest Nurse Leadership, the Can Lead Trial, a simulation-based randomized control trial implementation of a new cardiac arrest role to facilitate cognitive offload for medical team leaders. So a mouthful, but a very clear title that um, presupposes the work that's going to be done. And that was um, spearheaded by Jeremy Palace, um, a clinical nurse consultant, uh, clinical nurse specialist in New South Wales uh, Emergency Department in Australia. Um, I've got to say I was fam very, somewhat familiar with this and a little bit of a fanboy of this article, so um, I'll, I'll declare that conflict of interest there in <laughs> terms of the lead. analysis and try not to go too soft and um, have actually had actually already asked Jeremy to um, be on a panel um, at the CODA conference um, because of his work in this. Um, right. So so very cool. Look, um, it was a good opportunity and good incentive to dive into it, try and be a bit more critical of it, but that's where we're at. So in terms of the breakdown of this, um, essentially it was looking at the, the fairly well-accepted concept um, and it was a fairly evolving and popularised concept of the nurse team leader role and the potential benefits of that on the cognitive offloading um, from the more traditional medical team leader. So the kind of traditional model that was presupposed by this work um, was that there was a medical team leader that ran the whole cardiac arrest from everything from algorithm to then the quite challenging diagnostic dilemma stuff, the more heavy cognitive stuff. So, um, and the fairly quite right assumption that it has very high cognitive burden. There's a big cost to trying to do all of that. Um, so these, uh, Jeremy and his colleagues um, in a a large uh, tertiary um, urban 
emergency department looked at tackling this through in-situ simulations um, where they had an intervention group of a defined nurse team leader role and a control group of essentially organize yourself how you want. So it was quite a pragmatic control where they didn't say you have to, they didn't delegate roles. They just said, organize it how it feels natural and normal was the, I guess, wash out the short version of it. Um, that the They then looked at actually measuring the both performance and the cognitive task demands of um, the different models, the intervention versus control groups. Um, and they did that in some interesting ways that we'll get to uh, as we go through the study. Um, the hypothesis was, and given that it's an RCT, they had a hypothesis that it that there would be reduced cognitive load um, in the intervention group, um, and that may allow medical team leaders to focus on high-level tasks, and therefore we'd see some measures of improved um, team performance uh, as per predefined measures of success within those scenarios. They chose cardiac arrest management quite sensibly because there's some fairly good markers of time-oriented and task completion-oriented um, and task quality-oriented outcomes that can improve patient outcomes. So things like time to defibrillation, um, CPR fraction, quality fraction, um, and uh, time to completion of other time-critical tasks such as medication administration, um, uh, are a few to sort of uh, as, as benchmarks to think about. Um, they they randomised um, the two groups um, and the split of that ended up looking fairly equal in the um, the intervention and control groups in terms of experience and, and other relative, relevant demographics. Um, they then looked at that they were able to actually run 20 adult cardiac arrest simulations that had quite reasonable sort of, um, I guess, comparison between those those scenarios in terms of um, the and they complexity were pretty standard and other, sort of things. Yeah, yeah. other factors. Um, that captured a total of 120 participants. The intervention um, group medical team leaders, they found, sorry, I, I forgot to mention the actual, how they measured the cognitive load is, a, is an important part of that equation that I just skimmed over a touch. So they used the, um, they used both, looked at debriefing thematic analysis from the post-event or post-simulation debriefing and described that in some common themes that came out of that. Um, but also they uh, got all members of the team to use the uh, NASA task load index, which I've heard before of in a number of kind of more stress-oriented um, simulation-based studies. And that's where the um, members essentially do a task time checklist um, the this group um, from a pragmatic point of view ended up um, to look to understand sort of the differences split that further into two domains which weren't um, hasn't been commonly done it wasn't so they somewhat potentially undermined the validation of the NASA task load index by separating it into um, cognitive load or cognitive burden and performance which they do acknowledge it the, in the limitations um, that 
that that's a novel separation between performance and perceived demand um, and maybe makes it a bit hard to look at um, look mm. at the validity of that measure. But I think it was quite a practical way of separating, um, I guess, task work versus cognitive demands. Um, and mm. we've been more and more doing that when we're looking at the granularity of team-based performance, I think, doing the task work versus teamwork versus burden. Um, cognitive burden and demands. Yeah, and I think it's very much a desired quantitative way of looking at how hard is it for people to perform, how do you measure cognitive load. I'm certainly no expert on these tools, but I do know that you play around with them at your peril. Yeah. So I I understand why that was a discussion, but I I think just knowing that there are some tools out there that can help us measure cognitive load is is a useful thing for researchers uh, but also to help us understand how how we're going to measure what might otherwise seem like apples and oranges yeah absolutely and for the purpose of the study they also developed a task time checklist which the observers um, used to uh, monitor for those achievement of those predetermined time-based mm. tasks um, mm. how that washed up in the results is um, their hypothesis was supported Um, there was a statistically significant difference in performance of um, achievement of the intervention group achieved the task time orientated performance measures uh, faster um, and more accurately. And there was a measurable decrease in cognitive burden um, using the uh, NASA task load um, index in the medical team. And also I, I was. I really liked the fact that they also met, were attuned to measuring that in the nursing team leaders uh, or mm. in the nursing team within the intervention and control. And there wasn't a paradoxic increase, or I guess a, a, a rebound increase in um, trade off to the nurse team leader role. So, like you've done a good thing and reduced the cognitive load of the medical team leader, but then the nurses in the team are now crippled by a high cognitive yeah, burden. I know that was not the that was not the case was it it turns out that in fact uh, things are less than the sum of their parts and I'm sure that's because the nurses weren't quietly thinking to themselves what the hell is the doctor actually doing yeah. now I say that as a doctor uh, but I think actually sometimes there's some stress in not having a leadership role when you are a senior nurse tell yeah. me I'm wrong no, no, not at all. I think uh, <laughs> I, I'm not backward in coming forward, so my stress doesn't sit there for too long. But um, but I, I think so. I think there's a lot of that kind of wrestling with withholding your perspectives and trying and doing that with the purpose of actually trying to maintain the equilibrium in the team. Mm. Like everyone, it, it is important for the expected team leader to be positioned safely as the leader of the team. That's a really important thing for team cohesion, funnily enough, throwing mm. back to the first study. Yeah. Um, so not wanting to undermine that's a really important factor. But um, so, yeah, I think some of that freedom within the structure, but also the, the I guess, to be clear around that role that the nurse team leader took, it was essentially the administration of the ACLS algorithm components, overseeing, correcting, um ineffective CPR, those sorts of things. So that coach role um, versus the diagnostician and treatment decision-maker role is the Mm -hmm. best way to sort of separate it out. Um, That's certainly the way I've seen it separated out in various 
more opinion pieces, whether they're blogs or podcasts or, or uh, commentary people pieces in journals. So that's the way I've seen it done. I don't know if that's necessarily the only way or the right way, but it seems like it's something that people can get their heads around. So I guess the, uh, the I think a really great study to tackle something that when something's really popularized by podcast, by journal, uh, uh, sorry, by conference presentations, by opinion, it, it's great to actually have a look at it and go, can we measure it? Um, mm. And I think they've done a fantastic job of, of, I guess, giving us a framework to do that. And it's fair mm. and it's reproducible. The the I guess proof of concept is still not conclusive there in in and they the authors acknowledge a few limitations there which I think are really fair which was this it's that sim versus real dichotomy um, how much did both the structure of the simulation but also the fact that it was a simulation impact the performance of the participants mm-hmm. and we don't know well, that could be positive negative or neutral. Um, from our own sort of experience of running many simulations. Um, yeah, and, and it's very interesting, isn't it, because we often use simulation as a test bed because then we can have a reliable result because of the reproducibility. But then, of course, we lose something in the validity because we don't capture the messiness of the real world. And I think my comments probably go to that, and, and I guess it goes to where do we think we were in this academic conversation before this paper and maybe I've just read a lot about it, but I was, I'm ready to accept that this is a given, that uh, if you offload a medical team leader by nursing staff um, stepping up to something more clearly as a leadership role, it's a no-brainer. But I may be wrong about that. Maybe we do need to have a little bit more so-called proof that that is a good idea. I think the much more interesting question is, what are the enablers and barriers of embedding this in practice? And I think that's and the way I'm framing that is because that's what I've probably spent more time doing. And I'm quite surprised at how positive all the thematic analysis of the debriefing was. Not that I don't think people think it's a good idea, but I think once you do do this in uh, perhaps less uh, controlled simulations that aren't as clearly prescribed as cardiac arrests but then get there, uh, I I certainly have had the experience of things like, well, are people really ready to step up and do that? How confident do they feel doing that? What conversations do they have that enables the transition to a so-called nurse-led code? And I feel like um, either they just had lots of glowing positive debriefs or I feel like they didn't capture some of the things that get in the way of actually doing this in practice. Yeah, I think there's a companion piece that would be nice to sort of see alongside this, and that's hopefully what I'm pretty keen to get into with Jeremy at Coda, um, and it may be worth even getting him on in um, as mm. some pre-work to have a yeah. chat about about that, the stuff that didn't make the paper. Yeah. Um, I guess where I see it sitting is uh, as a supportive adjunct to actually mounting the argument. There's a publication in the Emergency Medicine Journal um, that demonstrates effectiveness of this. So another sort of, I guess, arrow in the quiver against the deniers of it. And my experience is that you can get into some pretty uncomfortable territory when you're talking about relinquishing power um, and control. And um, 
even when it is potentially to the benefit of the medical team leader, it can be a bit of a sense of actually loss of uh, complete ownership and autonomy over the the way things are administered in a clinical event yeah, and quite a high stress clinical event. Yeah. Um, and that can sometimes come out. I've found often when we're talking about interprofessional stuff, there's some people that are big exponents of it until it's happening. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I, I worked with a few like that and uh, like that's it's just an interesting observation rather than being good, bad or otherwise. That, yeah. um Well, it gets down to where is the unit at before you introduce something like this, what are going to be the enablers, as we said, and what are going to be the barriers and uh, – you know, I, I suspect actually that contexts are quite different. In ours, it was much less problematic from a medical point of view. All of all of our registrars who were doing this in sim desperately wanted the nurses to step up and co-team lead. Uh, but there was variation amongst the nurses about how feasible they found actually doing it. I don't think it was, at least in our place, framed as a power struggle. It was more just awkwardness of exactly how it happened, um, which I think like anything, it just takes some time to find a new rhythm if you're introducing a change but yeah very good article very well done and uh shout out to those people because there's also a lot of volume in the simulation that they did for this wasn't there yeah and i mean they acknowledged that that was one of the limitations actually that they were running these um in situ simulations in a busy emergency department um which impacted their ability to recruit i think some of that is actually the I guess Janus head of this situation in that the positive was in the negative as well, that they were actually, there, there was real tension. There was real tension with service delivery um, impacting them to complete this. Uh, there were uh, in intact teams that were pulled from the day that this was happening rather than a group brought in on their day off to do these in situ sims. So I, I think there's some authenticity that maybe lends itself to, addressing the research question better um the other point within that is that they while they acknowledged that it wasn't completely possible to blind the participants because there was either a dedicated nurse team leader or it was just go about your business as normal the intent of the study was blinded to the participants they were just running sims and then the debrief was structured um but you kind of get to the granularity of those sort of things in most debriefs after a multi uh, interprofessional cardiac arrest. Yeah, I think that was. Anyway. Yeah, and for me, that was very useful to see in their thematic analysis of the debrief. Why was it better? Uh, and relating that to communication, team leadership, perceptions of time, uh, and perceptions of collaboration, and perceptions of calmness and the kind of mood in the room, which is you were kind of getting at. Yeah, so excellent article. Thank you, Jesse. No worries. It was great to get to dive into a couple. Yeah, well, I guess this is then a happy new year to the Simulcast listeners and a couple of little papers to get us kicked off for the year and we'll be back with Journal Club uh, with Ben uh, early in February. So we'll look forward to that. And uh, meanwhile, Jesse, we can get back to our COVID world and uh, look forward to the next Simulcast where you can join us again. Thanks a lot. Great to be back. Absolutely. All right. Vic Brazel and Jesse Spur signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 